Pico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. And welcome to Eco Report on this cloudy Bloomington day. For WFHB, I'm Linda Leitner. And I'm Glenn Leitner. Democratic Senator Joe Donnelly of Indiana is co sponsoring legislation that exempts farmers from reporting manure emissions to the U.S. Coast Guard. The bill, called the Fair Agricultural Reporting Method Act, is strongly supported by the National Pork Producers Council. Advocates say it would fix a problem created last April when a U.S. Court of Appeals rejected a 10-year-old EPA rule which created a similar exemption. The April reporting mandate required over 100,000 livestock farmers to estimate and report emissions from manure on their farms to the Coast Guard's National Response Center. Advocates of the Fair Agricultural Reporting Method Act claim the bill will save farmers from, quote, abusive and harassing citizen suits from activist groups, unquote. The bill is a blow to those fighting concentrated animal feeding operations, or CAFOs. According to the Environmental Integrity Project, noxious emissions from animals and their manure include ammonia, hydrogen sulfide, and volatile organic compounds, or VOCs. These emissions can cause illnesses, lung damage, and even death in farm workers. The nonprofit Uplands Peak Sanctuary, Indiana's first and only refuge for farmed animals, is moving from Salem, Indiana to a 100-acre property in Freedom, Indiana. The organization has launched a crowdfunding campaign to pay for the property, transport of animals and structures, fencing for at least five acres, and barn preparation. The sanctuary is trying to raise $230,000, and a supporter will match all donations. The Peak Sanctuary educates the public by giving sanctuary to farmed animals like cows, chickens, and pigs. It offers visitors the opportunity to meet and connect with farm animals as individuals. Peak co-founder Michelle Pruitt expressed her excitement about sharing the sanctuary's mission with the Bloomington area community. She noted that, quote, time and time again, given the opportunity to experience the sentience of farmed animals, people are changed, unquote. Mexico is known as the winter home for monarch butterflies, but some also winter in California. Western monarchs are born on milkweed plants in Arizona, Idaho, Utah, and Washington before embarking on a seasonal migration to California. This year's California monarch count totaled 200,000, that's down from 1.2 million counted two decades ago. This number indicates that monarchs west of the Rocky Mountains, called the Western population, continue to decline rapidly. The Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation said in a recent report that the number of monarchs wintering in California is at a five-year low, despite 
larger survey efforts. Serena Jepson, Endangered Species Program Director for the Xerces Society, calls this, quote, concerning, end quote. Environmentalists are urging state governors to ban total release foggers, known popularly as bug bombs. These small cans are composed of an insecticide, a chemical synergist, and an aerosol propellant. They are used to kill household pests. Bug bombs can explode or catch fire near a pilot light or spark-producing appliance. They often contain synthetic insecticides called pyrethroids, which peer-reviewed research associates with health problems in children. These include behavioral disorders, ADHD, delayed cognitive and motor development, and premature puberty in boys. Bug bombs can cause acute poisoning and can persist in a home for over a year, threatening people with chronic exposure and subsequent health problems. Many non-toxic alternatives for managing household pests are available. A report by Bloomberg New Energy Finance shows that renewable energy now makes up 18% of total electricity generation in the U.S. This percentage has roughly doubled in the last decade. U.S. renewable energy generation increased by 14% from 2016 to 2017. The growth was driven mostly by the West Coast's rebound in hydropower generation after years of drought, but new wind and solar projects also came online across the country. Rachel Lowe, senior analyst for U.S. Utilities, commented that 18% brings renewable energy close to nuclear, which contributes about 20% of annual U.S. electricity. Meanwhile, natural gas slipped 2% last year from 34% in 2016 to 32% in 2017. Coal has also shrunk to 30%. In Indiana, 6% of our electric power is generated by renewables. Researchers from the National University of Ireland find that the stomachs of deep-sea fish contain microplastics. The fish live about 2,000 feet under the ocean surface. They are likely exposed to plastics at night when they swim to the surface and feed on plankton. Most microplastics appear on the ocean surface since their low density makes them float. Of the 233 northwest Atlantic fish the scientists studied, 73% contained plastic. That is one of the highest percentages of microplastics ever recorded in fish. The microplastics found were mostly microfibers, tiny plastic fibers that come from synthetic fabrics like polyester, rayon, and nylon. This fabric sheds microfibers when washed. A single jacket composed of synthetic fabrics can shed up to 250,000 fibers in the washing machine. In a few decades, chocolate may become very expensive. A temperature rise of just 3 degrees Fahrenheit is predicted to be devastating to the chocolate industry worldwide. The cacao tree thrives in humid rainforest conditions, but rising temperatures will mean less moisture in the ground. This loss will not be made up for by rain. Farmers in countries such as the Ivory Coast and Ghana, which produce more than half of the world's chocolate, will need to move cacao production higher and higher into mountainous terrain, much of which is protected forest land. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration says that adopting sustainable growing practices might stop increased deforestation. In Brazil, for example, 
farmers use indigenous trees to shade cacao plants. Shade cultivation lowers temperatures and prevents evaporation of water from the soil. The Indiana Department of Transportation is funding a $4.3 million renovation of Yellowwood State Forest roadways. The renovation projects of Yellowwood Road and Yellowwood Lake Road in Brown County are expected to close or restrict traffic in the state forest this summer. INDOT spokesman Harry Maginity says the roadway should make a big difference for people heading to the state forest when construction is completed. McGinnity says the improvement projects, which will be carried out by a contractor, will not asphalt or pave current gravel roadways in the state forest. This is a two-year, two-phase project. The first phase was done this past year, and it was uh, fairly similar dollars. We had to rebuild quite a bit of stretch of road there, and we also built uh, the longest bridge in, in Brown County, a 300-foot-long bridge over Salt Creek. As, as part of that, and that's because of all the flooding and difficulties they had with, with the road down there in the creek. And so we did some rerouting on that road. That was this past year. So this coming year, we're going to be working mainly in the northern uh, section, and that would be from the uh, boat ramp parking lot at Yellowwood Lake North. McGinnity said he could not comment on any impact on the roadways logging in the Yellowwood backcountry may have had on roadways around the state forest. For WFHB, I'm Linda Leitner. And I'm Glenn Leitner. We love to hear from our listeners. Contact us about stories we've aired or if you have ideas for future stories. Please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. And now it's time for Get Out and Hike, our segment showcasing the wonderful wild areas of southern Indiana and beyond. This is Get Out and Hike, and I'm Jan Walker. My name is Curtis Smith. I'm a, a resident here in Bloomington. My wife and I have lived here for five years. The Karst Farm Trail, it runs right by our house. We live around west side Bloomington, and so we like to just jump on that. It's a really nice flat trail. It's paved all the way. It's great for walking, biking. It's wheelchair accessible too. And we have twin boys and they're three and a half and they love to ride these little balance bikes and they've grown up on the trail. We we went out with them on the trail before they could walk in their stroller. And then when they got on the little tricycles, they were on the trail. And then now they're on these little balance bikes and we're, we're taking the trail. Yeah. And you feel like it's a pretty safe trail too, maybe for elderly or for moms with kids. We, we've always done it during the day. I'm mm -hmm. not sure what the lighting situation is at night. It's really open, the trail. I mean, there's open fields on either side. Part of it, you're going by houses. You do get out into a rural area, like as you go between kind of the edge of Bloomington and out towards the uh, Cars Farm. It's really well maintained. If you go out all the way to Cars Farm, there's parking there, and then you could walk back on the trail. You could take the tra trail back toward Bloomington, then back to your car. There's also parking at you know, the Ivy Tech parking lot, and you could walk half a block or a block to it. And you can take it from where it intersects with 3rd, it's like Profile Parkway kind of in 3rd or Whitehall. From right around there, you can go down a block and then you can jump on the on the trail just right there on the on the south side of 3rd. You could head out towards, towards Cars Farm and you can take it all the way to the splash pad we've gone one summer. It's quite a walk, it's a few miles if you go all the way out to the park, but you can go all the way out to the park on the trail and back. And you can go the other direction on it, you can go north 
and you can go all the way up by the Y. So it's just a great easy walk. There are some little hills here and there, but it's pretty tame. This week's feature, WFHB correspondent Norm Holy interviews Regina Asmus Silva about right whales. For WFHB, and today we are going to be speaking with Regina Asmus. She is the executive director of the Whale and Dolphin Conservation Group. They're located in Massachusetts. So, what's going on with the right whale? So, right whales are being impacted by a number of different threats, all of which are human-caused. So we we started off their depletion with whaling and then have added a number of different insults to their ability to recover over the years. And one of the biggest threats that they're now facing are entanglements in fishing gear. And so they, they do live very close to shore. Most of them are seen within 30 miles of the coast. They live pretty much only between... Florida and the Gulf of St. Lawrence and Canada, eastern Canada, relatively close to shore in places that have high uses for fixed, what we call fixed gear fisheries, like lobster fishing, crab fishing, hagfish, things that are gill nets that are set out and left to fish and then you retrieve them later. And also these are places that have pretty intense shipping traffic for coming into the shipping port. So entanglements and, and ship strikes continue to be their biggest primary threats. But certainly we're seeing habitats changing and shifting because of a changing climate. Food sources are shifting, so they're going into probably places that we hadn't considered previously where they're increasing their threats or their exposure to threats. So pretty much we, we are the reason that they're not recovering. What are the fishermen doing to mitigate the numbers that are lost each year? So I think it's really important to clarify the fact that this is, this is incidental to fishing. It's what we call bycatch. It's not intentional. The fishermen are not fishing illegally. They're using the habitat in a legal manner. Their fishing gear is operating legally. And there's been a number of different attempts over the years to try and modify fishing gear or uh, fishing practices to try and reduce the threat. None of them have been really effective enough to stop the entanglement in right whales. And so I just want to clarify up front that this isn't something that isn't is being done with any intent by the fishing community. And certainly, I think that it's really not up to the, the fishing community at this point so much as it is up to the managers. So the National Marine Fisheries Service in the U.S. is the agency that, that works to protect right whales, and they work with the fishing community to try and figure out new regulatory measures that will, will reduce risk. In Canada, the counterpart is the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, 
So they, what they need to do is that they need to figure out what the changes need to be, and then they need to make a regulatory change to enable the fishermen to continue to fish legally, but in a way that reduces risk. So I think it really is up to the the governments of Canada and the U.S. to step up and, and make those changes. How many right whales died last year from entanglements in fishing gear? The carcasses that were examined last year, it looked like there were a couple definitely from entanglement. A handful that were examined were from vessel strikes as well. So what the U.S. government has said is that you can't even kill one per year from a human cause, whether it's entanglement or bycatch, without impacting the recovery of a species. By that standard, that you can't even kill one a year without impacting their recovery, to have lost 17 last year, of those examined, most were either entanglements or vessel strikes. It's it's a pretty daunting um, concept to try and absorb. Ship strikes, would you describe that threat? So right whales uh, live very close to the coast, and they spend a lot of time at or near the surface, and uh, for large ships near the surface could be within the first 50 feet of the water column, depending on the amount of ship that's underwater. They don't get out of the way of ships, and they don't get out of the way of smaller vessels either. Nobody really knows all the reasons why. Again, it's a very complicated factor with that as well. Uh, For really large ships, there's something called the Lloyd Mirror effect, where the engine of the ship is so far behind the ship, basically, that it's really quiet in front of the ship, so they probably couldn't hear it until it passed by them anyway, at which point it's too late to get out of the way. That for smaller vessels, even, there are issues with um, getting struck by them. They may become habituated to sound, or it may be whatever they're doing is so incredibly important that they're willing to take that risk. So finding mates in a social group or finding food may be so much more important to them at that time than trying to avoid what they perceive as a threat, even if they're perceiving it. So vessel strikes are a really significant and have been historically a significant issue for right whales. What happened in, I believe it was 2008, and then um, it was set permanently in 2013, is that the U.S. put in a ship strike speed rule, and that required vessels that were over 20 meters, so if you're over 65 feet, within 20 miles of a port entrance seasonally along the east coast of the U.S. to slow down to 10 knots and during different right whale habitat seasons. Just that slowing those ships down in those places where right whales were being found seasonally reduced the risk of vessel strikes in the U.S. waters to right whales by about 80 to 90 percent. It was a hugely impactful regulatory measure that was put in place. How is the habitat for right whales holding up? It's certainly an ongoing issue of concern. They, the Gulf of Maine, which is the waters off New England from you know, Nova Scotia down through Cape Cod, was historically an incredibly important habitat for them. It is warming faster than the rest of the North Atlantic. That's very much impacting their food supply, which is a small little microscopic organism called the copepod, the tiny little um, zooplankton. And they like really cold water. And so we're not we're seeing shifts in their in their prey base here in the Gulf of Maine. So if they're not finding great food here, they have to go find it somewhere else. That might be I mean that's certainly one theory as to why they're kinda of going up into the Gulf of Saint Lawrence and Canada and to more northern waters in the summertime. No one has shown up really in the calving area this year. There have only been uh, two right whales that have been sighted in the calving area. This is the height of the calving season and not one calf has been sighted and no whales have really shown up except for those two 
in what we historically have considered the calving habitat. So what we're seeing right now is a complete shift in habitat use, and we don't know where most of the right whales are, the remaining right whales. And so that presents a challenge also for trying to protect them if you don't know where they are. So there used to be about 100 right whales in the Bay of Fundy during the summer. Are they still there? No, so a lot of effort went into moving shipping lanes, setting up areas to be avoided, kind of changing some fishing seasons based on right whales using the Bay of Fundy habitat. And and, um, it's not that there aren't any that go up there. They are, but again, since about 2010, the the sightings really have kind of shifted, and there's been a, a significant decline in sightings of right whales within the Bay of Fundy as well. I'd like to thank you for the interview. It was really going to be enlightening for our listeners. I wish you all the best in terms of managing the right whales in the future. Thank you so much, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about them. The more people that know, the better, the better off hopefully they're going to be. Are you an environmental activist, an expert on a particular issue of environmental concern, a concerned citizen interested in learning more about local and national environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. Give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now we bring you another installment of In Nature, our locally produced segment on wildlife in our listening area. This is In Nature. The American toad, Anaxurus americanus, is from two to three and a half inches long and lives near permanent or semi-permanent shallow bodies of water, which it needs in order to breed. Their color varies from yellow to red to black and can change according to humidity, stress, or temperature. In the fall, the toad digs itself under loose forest soil using its back feet and hibernates until warm weather comes. After a warm rain in May or June, one may see an exodus of toads hopping from high ground down to the water. The males will sing their high-pitched trill, attracting females and often other males. While mating, the smaller males will attempt to hold on to the female with his front legs. And once she has laid her 7,000 or so eggs, he will fertilize them. At times, there may be more than one male attempting to mate with a female. The pond in spring is a sexual cauldron, with toads trilling, mating, bubbling, and floundering in the water. Afterwards, long strings of toad eggs appear. 
The tadpoles will hatch, and within a month will develop legs and lungs and emerge onto dry land. They stay near the water for a short time and then leave for higher ground. Toads, unlike frogs, do not need to stay close to water. The American toad has a paratoid gland on the back, just behind the eyes. The gland excretes bufotoxin, a mild poisonous substance that can irritate the skin of humans. It can be fatal to small dogs if the frog is eaten or licked. The toad's diet consists of small insects, other arthropods, worms, and small invertebrates. You've been listening to In Nature. Lastly, for this week, the events calendar. Meet at McCormick's Creek State Park Nature Center on Saturday, February 24th, for a presentation on the bats of Indiana. Learn all about this area's local bats and learn how to attract them to your yard. Plan to hike to Wolf Cave, where you will hopefully get to see hibernating bats. Bring a flashlight. Learn some snow science at the Griffey Lake Nature Preserve on Sunday, February 25th, from noon to 1 p.m. Learn how much water is really in snow and whether snow can keep you hydrated. You will have the opportunity to make snow regardless of the weather. Bring a water bottle for this short hike to explore the frozen shoreline of Griffey Lake. Go to bloomington.in.gov parks to register. A winter exploration hike is scheduled at Monroe Lake on Tuesday, February 27th from 10 a.m. to 12 noon. Enjoy off-trail hiking through lesser-known areas of Monroe Lake. Hikers should be prepared for the possibility of rugged terrain, lack of formal toilets, and lots of fun. Registrants will receive an email with driving directions to the meeting location. Go to the Indiana DNR website by February 25th to register. Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area is hosting the Marsh Madness Sandhill Crane Festival on Friday, March 2nd from 5 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. The festival coincides with the peak Sandhill Crane and waterfowl migration to Greene County. There will be festival activities at nearby Humphreys Park in Linton, Indiana. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's news stories were written by Linda Green and Norm Holy. Norm Holy produced our feature. Julianne Daly compiled our events calendar. Kirsten Payton engineers the show and edits our audio. Script editor and showrunner is Andrew Brown. Producer is Rebecca Mueller. Executive producer is Wes Martin. For WFHB, I'm Linda Leitner. And I'm Glenn Leitner. Join us on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m., before Democracy Now!, and on Fridays at 5 p.m. before Kite Line 
for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can access headline news and feature audio from our show anytime on the WFHB website. You've been listening to The Eco Report. A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB. In Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org. Thank you.